Morning, church. As you can tell, we are going to begin a new series today on the topic of suffering. Uh, Before we get to that, uh, though, I want to report on and rejoice over what God did uh, last weekend through our Good Friday and uh, Easter services. Uh, We kicked off with a great... Uh, Good Friday services all over campuses uh, where uh, we took time to uh, really remember and focus on the cross uh, by preaching and by singing and uh, by partaking in communion. Uh, those services were, were very well attended. Uh, they were really, really rich and I think a powerful and, and really helpful as we uh, attempt to continue to grow in our love and appreciation for what Jesus did for us on the cross. Uh, and then uh, two days later on Easter Sunday morning, we came back to celebrate the resurrection uh, Uh, And we had, get this, uh, a baker's dozen short of 2,500 people that attended across all of our uh, campuses through six services. And can we just celebrate that a little bit? Yeah. Now, here's what's really great about that. What's really great about that is not the numbers. What's great about it is, A, the opportunity that we had to, to proclaim the gospel, and then, B, our ability to be able to, to gather as a church and to worship our risen King, Jesus. So it's not about numbers at the end of the day don't really matter other than the fact that we're here to proclaim the gospel. And so the more people we can proclaim the gospel to, the better. Y'all with me on that? And then B, the more people that are here, the more praise that Jesus gets, all right? So, so it's all about him. And uh, I think that we should be really, really thankful for what the Lord uh, did and what he's going to continue to do uh, through last weekend. Uh, I also want to say this, though. Uh, Last weekend was only possible because of your faithfulness. Your faithfulness in participating, your faithfulness in serving, your faithfulness in praying, your faithfulness in giving. What happened last weekend and, and really what happens every weekend only happens because God's people pray Participate, sing, give, and serve. And so I just want to urge you in light of last weekend and and every weekend and really every day to come, let's give ourselves to to those things more and more as we see the day of Jesus' return impending and coming, all right? And and so I just really want to encourage you that, you know, God's doing um, a really unique work for some reason He's doing a really unique work in our church in these days. And so as we move forward, let's give ourselves to these things more and more, all for his honor and his glory. Amen to that? All right. Now, um, we're going to kick off this new series. But uh, before we do, I want to just get real with you here for a second. The whole series is going to be real. Uh, It's going to be a little bit different. Uh, But I I need to let you know that as we uh, dive into this series, uh, it's pretty overwhelming for me. Like, I'm not sure I have ever felt more um, ill-prepared to preach the series that I'm about to preach uh, than what we're going to begin today and go through the the next four weeks. And that's not because I haven't studied. It's not because I haven't prayed. It's not because I haven't prepared. uh, But it's really for two reasons. Uh, One, this this topic is, is just absolutely massive, and there are potholes to step in all over the place. There's so many different things to talk about, so many questions that I'm not even going to be able to answer, uh, so many cans of worms that, and to be honest with you, are probably going to be opened uh, e- even today. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of trepidation as, as I step into it. Uh, but then second, uh, my, my week has been, to be honest with you, just uh, unbelievable. So, so we had a great Easter Sunday, went home celebrating, and then uh, on Monday morning, the texts and the emails and the calls started coming, uh, and they, they didn't stop the entire week. 
So it starts off with a, a, a cancer diagnosis. And then it goes to a, a major mental health crisis. And then there is a, a marriage issue. And then there's another big marriage issue. And then there is another potential cancer diagnosis. There's going to be a surgery. And then there is a, a member in our, fa- our church has a family member who died. And then another member has a family member who's a die. Pretty much every week, everywhere I went, whether it was the office, a track meet, whether it was an elder retreat this weekend, and then I stepped into it again this morning at the first service of the Burlington campus. And so it's, it's just pretty obvious that the Lord wanted me to feel weak and unprepared and overwhelmed by the magnitude of what we're, we're dealing with. And I bring this all to you today, not for you to feel sad for me or sorry for me, but I need you to pray for me. I really need you to pray for me. And, and I need you to pray for me, not for me, but for you. Because this, you, you, we, we desperately need what we're going to be talking about today. There, there's no doubt about it. And I am only going to be able to be helpful to you and honoring to the Lord if the Lord does it through me. So whatever he's going to do in this series, it's going to be him because it ain't going to be me. And so I just want to go before the Lord and I want to ask for him uh, to work and to show me mercy and then through me to show you mercy in this in the days ahead. So you join me in that in praying? Father, uh, we, 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 we need your mercy. I feel like the psalmist today, I just want to cry out and, and say, be merciful on us, Lord. Or like the, the tax collector who Jesus observed saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But Lord, I thank you that we can cry out to you for mercy knowing that you are merciful, God. Knowing that over and over again, we, we see it in Scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament, we are, we are reminded that you are a God who is steadfast in his love and his compassion and his mercy toward us. That, that those things, love and mercy and compassion and grace, are at the very core of your being and who you are. And God, forgive us, forgive me for forgetting that. For, forgive me for, for worry and anxiety and even trepidation. I know some of that is good, but some of it is just sinful, not relying on who you have shown yourself to be over and over and over again. And so, Lord, I know there are a lot of hurting people here today. Some know it, some feel it, some are ignoring it, some are medicating against it. And yet, Lord, we're all feeling it in one way or another. Lord, you, you tell us that uh, you comfort the downhearted, that you are close to those who are hurting. And I just want to pray uh, for, for the flock here, for, for your flock, your church, your people, that we will not only know and affirm in our heads and with our mouths your goodness and your grace, but that we will feel it, that we will experience it, that we will see it. That we will know that even in our darkest of days that you have not abandoned us and that you are never going to leave us and never going to forsake us. And that you are going to use every difficulty we face in this life for your glory and for our good. And I pray, Lord, uh, now that as we, we go into this and start into this, that we will learn to walk with you 
in the midst of the, the furnace, the, the, the forge, the fire that we face, the fires that we face in life for your sake. Amen. All right. To get off the series, I'm going to give now an uh, extended introduction. Uh, given the magnitude of what we're going to be talking about, I'm going to take about half of the message today uh, to set the table and to prepare us for, for what's to come. And, and so when I get done with the introduction, you're going to say, do we still have more to go? And the answer to be at that point would be yes. About half to go, all right? A uh, lot to talk about uh, today. And I want to start by addressing the, the why and the what of this series. Why are we doing and what are we hoping to accomplish through it? So why a series on, on suffering? Well, suffering is immeasurable, inclusive, and inescapable. Immeasurable, inclusive, and uh, inescapable. We can't even begin to measure the suffering in our world. Uh, To illustrate that this is the case, consider a few measurements. Now, I know I just said it's immeasurable, so why am I going to give you measurements? Well, the measurements I'm going to give you will show that at the end, our suffering is just completely immeasurable. So, so during the time that we're gathered for worship today, roughly 75 or 80 minutes, some 8,000 people in our world will die. That's about one every two seconds. So somebody just died. Somebody just died. Somebody just died. And of these 8,000 people that will die, 150, 114 will die by suicide. 57 of them will be murdered. And of those 57, 11 will be children. 38 people will be sexually assaulted just in the United States alone. 114 people will be trafficked, most of them uh, for labor, but, but many of them for sex. And some 690 million people will go hungry. And not the kind of hunger that you might be experiencing right now, but the kind of hunger that is pretty much starvation and facing death. I could go on and on with the statistics, but hopefully the point is made. We can't even begin to fathom how much suffering there is in the the world. Now, uh, we're numb to it. The reason that we're numb to it, most of these things don't even make a blip on our radar screen, right? All these people who are are dying. And that's because it happens so much and so often that we're, we're just completely numb to it. That's not all, though. Not only is there suffering out there, but there's also suffering in here. I've already pointed to this, but in a world that clamors for inclusivity, sufferers are the one group in which we're all included, whether we want to be or not. Elizabeth Elliot uh, defines suffering as having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. Having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. That's a pretty good definition. I I think there's more to it than that, but there's certainly not less. And, And therefore, in some way, whether we want to Say we're suffering or not, we're all suffering all the time. Finally, suffering is inescapable. While we think that we can avoid it, as Diane Langberg points out, suffering is the inheritance of us all. To see this, all we have to do is look at the three crosses of the crucifixion. We can see that in the unrepentant thief, suffering comes on the wicked. We can see in the penitent thief that suffering comes on the repentant. And we can see in Jesus that suffering comes on the perfect. None of those men were immune from suffering, and and neither are we. 
So suffering is immeasurable, inclusive, inescapable, and as a result, it presents some real challenges for the Christian faith. Uh, For some people, it prevents them from coming to faith. For others, suffering is a primary reason they leave the faith. And for others still, it's a real hindrance in their faith. Now, I don't know which of these categories you fall into, if, if any of them. My experience says that most, if not all of us, fall into at least one of them. But regardless, here's my hope in this series. My hope in this series is to address suffering in such a way that those who, that with, without faith, will come to have it. Those who have left the faith will return to it. And those who find suffering to be a hindrance to their faith will instead come to uh, find, it that, find that it helps their faith. So it's a hindrance, but I want to see it actually become a help to your faith. Yes, I am saying that I want to see suffering come to be a help to your faith. And the reason that I want to see that is because that's what God wants to see. God wants to see your suffering help your faith. So that's the why. Let's now talk about the what. I've got two goals for this series. Goal, number, goal A is to help us develop a biblical theology of suffering. A biblical theology of suffering. And then goal B is to learn how to apply said theology to our lives. This series has something for our heads and something for our hearts. We're going to learn the truth about suffering and then how to use that truth to comfort, guide, and shape our hearts in the midst of it. Uh, Whether you realize it or not, you already have a theology of suffering. Uh, By that I mean you already have a way in which you try to make sense of the suffering that you experience and that you see in life. My experience, however, is that most of us don't actually have a biblical theology. Let let me give a couple of examples here. One way that we try to make sense of suffering is to believe that it's always deserved. Uh, It's to attribute all suffering to stupidity or sin on the part of the sufferer. So when we say we see suffering or, or we even suffer ourselves, we're like, well, that's because we or that person did something wrong. However, that's not a biblical theology that's a theology of karma you see the bible tells us that while sometimes suffering is deserved there are many times where it isn't Uh, consider four j's in the bible we'll begin with jonah jonah's suffering was deserved god says go to nineveh jonah says "Uh uh-uh goes the other way he ends up in the belly of the great fish he sinned and he suffered at the same time consider three other j's Job, Joseph, and Jesus. Three men we're going to talk about a lot in this series. But each and every one of them was an innocent sufferer. They did not deserve. The Bible's really clear. They did not deserve the suffering that they experienced. So here's something I want you to hear right from the start. This morning, some of you are weighed down by guilt or shame because you believe your suffering is your fault when it actually isn't your fault. Now, many times our suffering is our fault, but it's also often not our fault. There are other causes to suffering than our stupidity or sin, some that we're going to talk about here in a moment. But for now, I just want you to consider that your suffering might not be deserved and that there might be some real healing for you to be found in this uh, truth. And so... Let me say this, um, 
if you have cancer or a loved one has cancer, it's not because you have sinned or because they have sinned. God's not punishing you by making you sick or somebody else sick. That is not true. You need to hear that and you need to know that today. It's a lie from the devil. If you've been sexually assaulted, it's not because you deserve it. It's not because you did something wrong. The fault does not lie with you. The fault lies with the person who did that to you. If your parents abused you as a child, it's not because you were a bad child. It's not because you did something wrong. Now, did you do something wrong as a child? Absolutely. All children do things wrong. That does not mean a parent has the right in any way to abuse their child. It's not your fault. And I could go on and on with examples, and and I know what I just said is open an entire can of worms, but I've done it intentionally because some of you need that can of worms open so that you can find healing. You might be suffering because you, you, you've sinned, that, 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 that might be the case, but it also might be the case that you're suffering because of somebody else's sin, or as we're going to see here in a minute, because Satan is attacking you. Here's another example. One way to make sense of suffering is to believe it's purposeless, that suffering is random and therefore no good can come from it. This is the predominant view of suffering in our culture, and it's one of the reasons that our highest value today in America is to avoid suffering at all costs. However, this once again is not a biblical view of suffering, not in any way. According to the Bible, God does have purposes in our suffering, and all of these purposes are good. Can I say that again? God has purposes in our suffering, and every single one of them are good. So I want you to hear this morning this right at the beginning too. Your suffering isn't meaningless. Or to quote Elizabeth Elliot again, your suffering is never for nothing. Your suffering is never for nothing. And that leads to what will be the emphasis of this this series. We're going to focus on God's good purposes for suffering. Now, as I say that, I need to make it clear that we can't know all the reasons God has for our suffering, and we can't know all of them because the Bible hasn't revealed all of them to us. Uh, That's why you will notice that we've included a question mark at the end of the title for this series, Making Sense of Suffering with a question mark in parentheses at the end, because neither I nor, nor anyone else will be able to help you to make complete sense of suffering in your life. However, we can make a lot of sense out of it, And what we can make sense of has the potential to make all the difference in the world. Uh, Listen, um, here's the bad news. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. And and some of you, maybe, especially you young people, you're like, I haven't really experienced a whole lot of suffering in my life. I'm just telling you it's coming. Bad news. You are going to suffer. And, And therefore, as Tim Keller points out, there's really nothing more important than to learn how to maintain a life of purpose in the midst of it. How do we live a life of purpose in the midst of the suffering that we're going to face? We're going to talk about that, and hopefully we're going to find out how to do it and actually begin to do it in the weeks ahead. So let's begin uh, to attempt to make some sense of suffering by, uh, well, beginning at the beginning. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, while you're finding your way there, uh, let me set the stage. 
Uh, the first two chapters of the Bible tell us that God originally created the world suffering uh, free. Uh, the last verse of Genesis chapter 1 tells us that after God had created everything, he looked at it. Okay? He, he looked at the, the star, he looked at the skies, he looked at the planets, he looked at the moon, he looked at the sun, he looked at the earth and everything on the earth, all the animals, all the plants, and the two human beings that he created, and he pronounced them very good. Everything was very good. Uh, the word good in Hebrew means uh, agreeable. It means pleasant. It means desirable. In, in other words, everything was perfect, and the world was without pain, difficulty, or suffering of any kind. God's original creation was, in a word, paradise. However, when we turn from chapter 2 to chapter 3, an intruder arrives in paradise and in his wake is suffering. So look at the story with me. I just got to warn you, we're going to read the entirety of Genesis chapter 3. It's a rather long passage. The reason we're going to do so, however, is the rest of the message is going to pull out the truths that, that we learn from Genesis 3 about suffering. And they are absolutely crucial truths for every single one of us to understand. So follow along with me as I read. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So lots and lots to talk about here. But we're going to focus on two big things that this chapter tells us about suffering. They're the sources of suffering and the solution to suffering. Sources of suffering and solution to suffering. The sources of suffering are Satan and sin. Uh, With a malicious intent of ruining God's perfect creation, Satan comes into the Garden of Eden in the form of a snake and presents Adam and Eve with a deadly temptation. He, he manipulates God's words. He just twists it a, a, a little bit. He says, you know, God told you to do that, but that's not really what he meant. So, so you can go ahead and do this. You know, if, if you do that, things are all going to make sense. And you're actually going to be God yourself. So Adam and Eve, uh, being deceived, they decide to listen to the snake. They rebel against God. Sin enters the world. And along with sin, a whole host of deadly consequences along with it. And in fact, all of the world, all the suffering in the world, from the beginning of time until this very day, has its roots in the first interaction that we see here between Satan and our first parents. But let's talk a little more about Satan. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that a great deal of the suffering in our world can be laid at his feet. Satan hates God. But because he dares not attack God directly, he attempts to do so by harming those who are made in God's image. Here's a little bit of the backstory. Um, Ezekiel 28 tells us that before God made the world, uh, Satan uh, was an angel named Lucifer, likely the second most powerful being in the universe. But at some point uh, before time began, Lucifer uh, became proud in his heart. He didn't want to be number two anymore. He wanted to be number one. And so he leads a rebellion, uh, rebellion with other angels against God. The problem is, is he, he, he's no match for God. So he gets his butt kicked and he gets kicked out of heaven. And now, knowing that he can't attack God directly, what does he do? Well, he basically decides to stage a guerrilla warfare by attacking those who are made in God's image here on earth. One of the things we need to see is that Satan's strategy hasn't changed much since the beginning of time. He he does to us what he did to Adam and Eve. He entices and deceives us to sin, but he also now directly assaults us physically, mentally, and emotionally. There are numerous examples of this in Scripture from from Job, who we're going to talk about next week, to the demon-possessed, to the physically disabled woman bound by Satan for 18 years. Can I just tell you this? Some of the physical pain and difficulty that we face is caused directly by Satan himself. And so in John chapter 10, Jesus says that Satan steals, kills, and destroys. And brothers and sisters, we dare not be blind to this. Satan isn't make-believe. He's not an imaginary figure symbolized by a man in red tights with horns and a pitchfork. By the way, do you know who's behind that image? Can you guess? It's Satan himself. He wants us to think he's a knight. By the way, I remember the first time I had that picture of Satan was watching the Flintstones when I was a kid. Remember how the, 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 bad, the, the bad guy and the good guy would be on Fred's shoulders? Come on. There are a lot of you who are just as old as I am, okay? 
That's actually Satan behind that because he wants us to think that he's not a threat. But you need to hear today, brothers and sisters, that Satan is real, that he's powerful, that he's wicked, that he's evil, and that he is out to destroy your life in every way that he can. Satan is behind a whole lot of suffering in this world. Now, now with that said, he, he's actually not the primary source of suffering, so we've got to be careful with Satan. We, we, we need to, in some ways, respect his power and the way that he works. we also got to be careful that we don't blame all of our problems in life on him. Okay, so Satan is not behind your internet connection not working, okay? He's not behind your toast burning. He's, he's also not directly responsible for your sin. Because at the end of the day, you know what the primary source of suffering in our world is? The primary source of suffering, Genesis 3 tells us, is sin. Genesis 3 makes it clear that suffering only enters the world after Adam and Eve rebel against God. And it might be helpful to think about it this way. Before, uh, before sin... Adam and Eve experienced a perfect relationship with creation, with one another, with themselves, and most significantly, with God. Perfect relationship in all of those dimensions. However, once sin entered the world, difficulty came upon all of these relationships. If you think hard enough about it, you will realize that this has been your experience every day of your life. So just think about creation. You have difficulty with creation. All we got to do, by the way, we don't have to even probably go back to, to last week, but we will do so. Do you remember what happened last Sunday afternoon here in Iowa, the great state of Iowa? You look out your window after a nice meal. What's, what's coming down outside? Snow. April 17th. Come on. All of us wanted a white Easter, didn't we? We were all looking for that. That's what we, I don't even think God intended for that to be the case. And we could joke about that, but we have a lot of problems. The world is wearing out, and it causes us difficulty. Or think about your relationships with other people. Anybody have any difficulty with other people in your lives? We probably already had it this morning, right, to, to some degree. Those of us trying to get kids ready for church had difficulty with other children, right? But that's the reality. Think about ourselves. Any of us struggling with discouragement, depression, guilt, shame, self-doubt, most significantly, have any of us ever experienced any difficulty in our relationship with God? We've all experienced that, have we not? And so what we need to understand, and, and really the biggest difficulty here is found in a relationship with God. And actually difficulty isn't the best word. Death is a better one. You will note the chapter 3 ends with Adam and Eve being banned from the Garden of Eden, which means that they're separated from God's presence. What's pictured for us here is spiritual death. Spiritual death. As we talked about last week, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And because we sinned all, we're all born spiritually dead, separated from, from God. So when Adam and Eve came into the world, when they were created, they were spiritually alive. They, they walked with God. They saw him face to face. There was no difficulty. But the moment that they sinned, they died spiritually. And therefore, when we come into this world, every single human being since, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, is dead in their transgressions and sin. Now, here's the point in all of this. All the suffering we face today can be traced back to Adam and Eve's original sin. Sin brought suffering, and it continues to bring suffering today. Here's why it's so important for us to realize this. 
Only when we see sin as the root of suffering will we realize that we can't come up with a solution to suffering on our own. You see, when we fail to see sin as a root of suffering, we'll think that the solution to it is political or environmental or medical or educational. We'll think that if we can, we can just get the right politician in place, we'll be able to take care of suffering. Or if we can just get the right medicine, we'll be able to eliminate suffering. Or we can just get the right laws passed. Or if we can just get, get the, the right education, people to know the right thing, then we'll be able to get rid of suffering. The problem is, is that even though all of those things are appropriate to try to mitigate suffering, they will never end suffering. You know why they will never end suffering? Because they can't deal with the root cause of suffering, and the root cause of suffering is sin. And here's the thing. Here's what this means for us. We cannot deal with the root problem of suffering because we're spiritually dead. Sin is a spiritual problem. We're spiritually dead, and that means that the solution to suffering has to come from outside of ourselves, that God has to provide that solution. And here's the great thing that we see in Genesis chapter 3. We see in the midst of the most depressing chapter in the Bible, we see that God is already working to provide that solution, all right? So uh, have you ever read chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, and gotten angry? You should, right? You ever read it and you're going, what in the world were they thinking? Why in the world they did it? Listen, all the difficulty that we face in, in life, all, all of the issues, all the heartache, all the pain, all the loss, it all the way goes back to Adam and Eve's decision to rebel against God. And, and so when we read this chapter, we should get angry about it and about the devastation that it has caused. And yet, in the midst of this most depressing, really, chapter in the history of the world, God has a solution. God decides that he is going to do something about it. Instead of just trashing the world, scrapping it, and starting over, or instead of saying, hey, forget about this, that was, a, that was a bad idea, okay, and just moving on, God actually decides to enter into our suffering, and we actually see that he makes a promise that he is one day going to send someone to undo what Satan and sin have done. But we see this in verse 15. So look at verse 15 Again, let me show you this. In verse 15, as God's pronouncing judgment on the serpent, he promises to send someone to reverse the curse. In this verse, we have what is known as the proto-evangelion. Now, that, that's a big word, but it simply means first good news. Proto-evangelion. So, so you know that a prototype is the first of its kind, right? Evangelium is the, the Greek word basically for um, good news, or the gospel. So in Genesis 3.15, so get this, all right? We're only three chapters into the Bible. We're only moments after Satan and sin have really ruined everything. And yet, what does God do? God comes towards Adam and Eve. In his grace, he moves toward them, and he promises that he is going to send someone someday to completely undo everything that has been done. What's in view in verse 15 here, my friends, is nothing less than the cross. The cross where Satan struck Jesus, but in the process, Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and suffering. Here's how Hebrews chapter 2 explains it. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, 
He himself likewise partook of the same things. Let me explain what's going on there. We are flesh and blood, right, as humans. That's what we are made of. So the Son of God came in flesh and blood. He partook of the same things that we do. So that, why did he do so? So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Anybody want to say amen to that? Death here, friends, is is a, a summary word for suffering. All suffering is a form of death, and in turn, death is the ultimate form of suffering. But what Genesis 3 predicts and what Hebrews 2 tells us is that through his death, Jesus defeated death. Through his suffering, Jesus paved the way for there to be a day where suffering will be no more. Of course, that day hasn't come yet. It's obvious that there's still a lot of suffering, maybe even more suffering today than at any time in history. And yet I want to point out that the bookend to Genesis 1 through 3 is Revelation 20 through 21, which tells us that there's a new heaven and a new earth coming. A new heaven and a new earth where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, i.e. no more suffering. It's a new heaven and a new earth that has a tree of life. The tree of life we will once again have access to, meaning that we will live forever on this new heaven and new earth and the perfection that God originally created us to. Can, can, can you see that? that? That's how Genesis 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3 ends. Adam, they're, they're, they're booted out of the Garden of Eden so that they can't eat from the tree of life and, and live forever. So they, they die. You'll note there that... Um, God tells Adam that he came from dust and he's going to return to dust. We need to understand that that wasn't the original plan. Adam was made for dust, but he wasn't supposed to return to dust. Did you realize that death isn't natural? Sometimes I go to funerals or I do funerals. Somebody will get up and speak and they'll go, this is all unnatural. And if I ever hear that, what I want to do is I want to stand up and scream, you're wrong. You don't do that at funerals, but that's what I want to do. That's why I want to do it. Because we weren't made to die. We were not made to die. And there's coming today, friends, where we won't. And I don't have time to go through all of this. But again, in verse 15, God's promising that Jesus is going to come. And that on the cross, Satan is going to strike Jesus' heel. The picture there is that that Satan's going to be behind the crucifixion of the Son of God. And on Good Friday, friends, Satan thought that he had won. He thought that he had finally gotten his revenge and he had finally defeated God. And it looked that way, everybody thought that was the case, for three days. Until on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus came out of the grave. And he crushed Satan's head. He defeated him. Now Satan, Satan's still, he's still active. Okay, First John tells us that, that he is in control. He, he eats the power in this world. But that's not going to last forever. In fact, it's not going to last for very long at all. Because Paul says in Romans 15 that Jesus is going to come and he's going to crush Satan's head. Soon crush Satan's head once and for all. And when he does that, when he does that, he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. A new garden of Eden. And in that garden of Eden will be that tree of life and we will have access to it. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was crucified? What happened in the temple? The veil was torn in two. 
What is that symbolizing? It's symbolizing that we can go back into God's presence. And you know what is sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant? There's two cherubim. Those two cherubim that in Genesis 3 are guarding the way to the Garden of Eden to keep us from going in. Those cherubim are no longer going to be guarding the way because we're going to be allowed in and we're going to experience the perfection that we were created to experience and we're going to experience it forever. So let me start to land the plane with this. There's a question that every one of, single one of my kids have asked me and one of them uh, has asked me repeatedly back in very recent time. And it's this question. Why did God allow all of this to happen? Do you ever wonder? Why did God allow Satan to come and tempt Adam and Eve? Why did God allow them to sin? Why did he allow suffering to enter into this world? Here's my answer to that question. Actually, it's a non-answer. I don't know. I don't know. I cannot answer that question. I can hypothesize about it. I have a few ideas, and there's lots of other people who have ideas as well. However, I don't find them fully satisfying, and I don't think you will either. But here's what I will tell you. Again, when God could have scrapped everything and walked away, instead he entered into our suffering. Just think about this. In love for us, God took on human flesh and experienced Satan's attacks and sin's consequences in an infinitely greater way than any of us ever will. On the cross, Jesus suffered physically in the greatest way that you can possibly suffer. Physically, mentally, and emotionally. More significantly, and we really have to get this, on the cross, Jesus suffered spiritually in a way that none of us ever will. Why is that the case? Because as Jesus hung on the cross, God poured out upon Jesus the wrath for every single bit of our sin. From all eternity, God the Father and God the Son had had a perfect, loving relationship. We, we all know what it's like to, to lose someone we love and how painful that is. Think about how painful it would be if that relationship had been perfect and there had never been any issues, never been any difficulty, never any heartache. That is what Jesus experienced on, on the cross. That is why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father turned his back on his son and Jesus cried out in the greatest agony you could possibly cry out. And you know why he did it? For you. He did it for you. And so here's the question I have for you today. Can't you trust him? Even if you can't understand why God allows suffering, why he allows your suffering specifically, can't you trust if he was willing to enter into your suffering and to make it possible for it to be a day where you will experience suffering no more, that he has good purposes in your suffering? Can't you trust him in that? Now, now again, I cannot answer for you why you are going through what you're going through, why that happened to you, why God allowed that. But here's what I can tell you. It can't be because he didn't love you. It can't be because he doesn't love you. He proved that he loved you 2,000 years ago when he sent his son to die in your place and to experience, literally experience hell 
for you so that you don't have to. And now, because he has, you can trust that no matter what you face in life, he has good purposes in it, and that if you will walk with him in that suffering, he will make something beautiful out of it. Let me tell you the story in closing here, and I really am done here, of someone who embodied this truth. About 200 years ago, uh, there was a, a, a young girl, really she was two months old, uh, who became ill. Uh, small town in New York. And when she became ill, her doctor was out of town, family doctor was gone, and so her parents called uh, another doctor, or a guy who actually was pretending to be a doctor. And so he prescribed a hot mustard poultice to put on her eyes to fix her illness. Now, remarkably, she actually recovered from her illness, but that poultice burned her corneas and she went blind. A couple months later, her dad died. When her dad died, her mom had to go to work to provide for the family. And so before she was a year old, uh, she effectively became an orphan. In this, though, God was gracious because she came under the care of her grandmother, who was a Christian. And her grandmother discipled her and taught her how to walk with God through suffering. And she did so primarily by leading her to memorize scripture, which she did at the pace of about five chapters of the Bible per week. To the point before she was a teenager, she, she, she could quote in entire portions, the Gospels, the Psalms, the Pentateuch, most of the Bible, I believe, or at least the majority of the Bible she could quote before she was even a teenager. God then took this along with a natural gift and affinity she had for poetry. She began writing poetry as early as eight years of age. And over time, God used that ability to enable her to take the Bible and to put it to song. So that she is now probably the most prolific hymn writer in history. 9,000 hymns. Blind orphan, essentially. 9,000 hymns. In fact, she, she wrote so many hymns that they actually had to... Uh, put some of them under other people's names or the whole hymnal would have been made up of her songs. You know her as Fanny Crosby. Her most famous song is Blessed Assurance. It goes like this. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchased of God. Purchased of God. Some of you finish it for me here. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Fanny Crosby trusted that God had good purposes in her suffering, and as a result, he produced something beautiful from her life. He produced a life that's impacted millions and millions of people over the last 200 years. And we've got a lot more to talk about in this series, but take this with you today. If you will trust God like she did, if you will lean on Jesus and praise him for your salvation, and he'll make something beautiful of your suffering too. Let me pray for you.